returning of the ship to a, a better future for us all. Anyway, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and we're going to move on to, uh, what are we going to move on to? Rank and file, Marcus uh, Harrington's report on uh, what's going on in uh, the union world. And welcome to another edition of Rank and File Radio and Community Radio 3CR. I am the presenter of today's program, Marcus Harrington. Later in the program, we will go to the first part on a series to look at the Robe River dispute. That dispute took place in the Pilbara in 1986. I interviewed Graham Haynes, an ETU shop steward at the time and a veteran of the Robe River dispute. And we'll go to the first part of his interview later on in the program. But first of all, we'll look at a successful campaign waged by 50 furnishing workers, members of the CFMEU at Canterbury Windows and Doors. Uh, those workers arrived to work on May the 28th to find that the company had uh, locked them out of the Clayton South factory. Uh, the workers were in dispute with management over their new enterprise agreement. The company locked those workers out after the members of the CFMEU voted to reject uh, what they said was an insulting wage offer of uh, just 1%. The week prior to the lockout, the workers had stopped work for two hours in protest to the management's offer. Victory for the locked-out workers came last Friday afternoon, June 12, at about 5 o'clock, when the dispute was resolved. The CFMEU members at Canterbury Windows uh, negotiated a much-improved pay offer with a generous sign-on bonus and an increase to income protection. No loss of conditions was also achieved through the workers campaigning against the lockout. Now we'll hear some audio of the workers who manned the picket line. All right, fellas, so we know what we're going to do, yeah? Yeah! 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 What are we going to do? Monday, June 15 marked International Cleaners Day and to mark that day, the United Voice members marched through the streets of Melbourne to defend penalty rates. We will now hear from one cleaner who addressed the rally. Because business groups are calling onto the Productivity Commission to erode our pay and condition. The Australia's Chamber of Commerce and Industry claims that is no need to penalty raise to be regulated in pay to chief workers. That is a big liar. Yeah. Because we know we know <laughs> we need the money. We working hard to get the money. And we deserve the money. Yeah. And we are marching today in the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry to stand up against this attack. Yeah. We deserve a penalty rate. Everybody deserves the penalty set and deserves We will now go to the first part of the interview with Graham Haynes on the Robe River dispute. On today's edition of Rank and File Radio, we are joined by Graham Haynes, who was a union member in the Pilbara during the minerals boom through the 1970s and 80s. And today, Graham joins us as we look at the Robe River dispute, uh, a key dispute in the Pilbara. 
in the mid 80s. Welcome. And uh, thanks for joining us on the program today, Graham. Oh, it's good to be back. Oh, I can recall uh, being on the program in, in 1986. It's, uh, it's great to see 3CRs uh, still up and running and uh, providing a, a tremendous service to the community of Melbourne. OK, and back in 1986, uh, was it you were, you were brought to Melbourne as part of the Defend the Unions uh, campaign? I was, yes, yeah. Interesting times. A couple of uh, builders, labourers... Uh took you around to different sites around Victoria to discuss uh, the situation that we're going to discuss a bit later in the show. Sure, sure, yes, yes. It was uh, heady times. The the builders' labourers at the time had been uh, deregistered and de-recognised and uh, their organisers had been told not to pay fines, and uh, which meant that uh, basically if they were, uh, they were caught as a result of outstanding fines and warrants, they they would have been jailed. So it was, uh, it was an interesting time. They hosting me and, uh, and putting me up in safe houses and taking me to all sorts of work sites to uh, discuss the Robe River dispute. OK, so up until that time, uh, what was your personal involvement in the union movement? Um, I, I was uh, deputy convener or, or, or chairman of the Electrical Trade Union at, at Cape Lambert okay. and had a role with the Combined Union Council and uh, basically uh, played a fairly active role in, uh, in uh, winning conditions uh, that we desperately needed in uh, such a hot, dry and remote uh, place, a very harsh working environment, very dangerous working environment. Okay, so the year was uh, 1986, and up until that time, the Pilbara was a union stronghold. Oh yes, yes, yes. Uh, we we had uh, uh, virtually 100% unionisation of uh, both the the workers on site, and in fact the contractors. Uh, you know, it was really a case of if you wanted to work on site, you you were you were in the union. Okay, uh, what were some of the gains uh, won by workers up until that point in '86? Well, um, going back to when I started, which was in 1975, uh, um, there, there was a shortage of housing and accommodation, which meant a lot of people had to uh, live in pretty rough uh, construction camps and caravan parks, and uh, there was insufficient housing, uh, and uh, always a squabble as to who went on the housing list and who got a house. Okay. So uh, some of the earlier disputes I can recall were setting up housing uh, committees to oversee um, and get people out of substandard uh, living conditions into into decent accommodation. So we had a lot of disputes over that and eventually uh, we we controlled that situation. We uh, went on strike to get more houses built okay. and, uh, and to ensure that people uh, adequately housed. Okay, so... The workers were successful in uh, making gains, and then in late uh, late July 1986, a major challenge was uh, made to the union power in Western Australia. Um, and following a six-month audit, uh, PK Walls End was it? Uh, they took over the Robe River Iron Ore Company, and their CEO uh, Charles Copeland um, sacked uh, senior management and replaced them. They did, yeah, yeah. I mean. Uh... We'd had a lot of uh, industrial battles, not just over housing, of course. There was a whole range of other issues that uh, involved everything from 
uh, wages and conditions okay. and safety issues and lockout procedures, um, rack out procedures of dangerous equipment. But of course, when Copen made that move, uh, we were fairly confident that uh, that they weren't going to win. Okay. Uh, they they did end up sacking 60 people who refused to. Uh, be allocated whatever jobs that they wanted to put them into, because at the time they considered anything that was a restriction on them to put people wherever and whenever they wanted was a restrictive work practice. And, okay. uh, of course, uh, the 60 workers refused. They they uh, they were sacked, and um, that's when things started to go off the rails a little bit. The uh, the uh, union bureaucracy basically told us we had to fight it differently. They took it to the commission, and the commission uh, ordered the uh, you know a, a stay on that and a return to the previous job. Before the that workers effect- were sacked on that same day, late July '86, the new uh, general manager of operations, McRae, was it? He issued the notice that restrictive work practices uh, were to end. That he said uh, management decisions will be made by management. Any previous arrangements, understands in and expectations that such matters may need the endorsement of unions before implementation shall have no uh, further effect. What are some of the examples of what, what he said were restrictive work practices? Well, well, anything at all. For instance, um, a driver's licence on a mine site that doesn't require a driver's licence okay. would be deemed to be a restrictive work practice. So basically you could put anyone in the in the heavy equipment or trucks and say, drive. And if you said, well, I don't have a driver's licence to operate this, they would say, well, that's a restrictive work practice because you don't actually need a driver's licence to drive a haul pack. Okay. Um, There were quite quite a number of uh, restrictive work practices which the company intended to remove. Well, there was over 200. and they coined the word pre- previous to Pico Walls End. There, there was no such word as restrictive work practice in the industrial language. Uh, it was something that was coined at Robe River. Okay. So after this, um, the company uh, was had the idea they would no longer follow the previous management's policy of uh, setting industrial problems by uh, negotiation, that it was going to go uh, through arbitration? That was the curious thing. Um, the Commission basically put a stay on the company's position and the company responded by uh, by locking everybody out, the whole 1,100 uh, workers employed at uh, Cape Lambert and, uh, and, and at the mine site at Panawanica. So their reaction to the Commission decision was to basically lock everyone out. OK, and uh, you mentioned before the union bureaucracy told the workers they had to change their way, uh, they had to settle disputes through arbitration. Um, I mean, what reasoning did the so-called leadership have <laughs> well, for that well, idea? Well, it was a curious time. I mean, we had the Burke Labor government in power at the time and we had a Hawke Labor government federally. And, uh, and basically um, there was a conclusion drawn... Uh, I'd argue erroneously that there were too many disputes in the Pilbara, okay. and uh, and they had to uh, had to cut it back, uh, you know, throttle throttle the disputes, and uh, of course that was occurring right during uh, that uh, that period known as the uh, uh, Prices and Income Accord, which basically strangled workers' uh, 
any attempt to get pay rises during that period okay. had to uh, involve uh, you know ridiculous trade-offs. It was at arbitration in early uh, August of '86 when uh, Commissioner Coleman ordered the company to restore the pre. Uh, July 31 status quo order for 30 days uh, while conferences took place under his chairmanship uh, to resolve the dispute by conciliation. Uh, changes to work classifications, shifts and rosters had uh, mean, meanwhile already been made. Uh, the militant workers uh, chose to ignore these orders to work under the status quo arrangement. Yes, well, well um, obviously... Um the uh, the arrangements just to work uh, plug-in people and portable personnel we used to call it uh, was inherently dangerous apart from anything else and uh, and basically um, when when the commission ordered a status quo um, the company refused to acknowledge that and okay. uh, and that, that's when the lockout occurred. Yeah, we, we had some real, real, real fun then. Okay, so that, that's when the 60 workers were sacked. Uh, the Industrial Relations Commission then ordered reinstatement, but then the company again uh, responded. How did how did they respond after the reinstatement order? Well, um, they uh, they they locked out 1,100 workers. Okay, um, and uh, that's when the, that's when things really geared up. Um, uh, we we had a situation that by about oh, the chronology uh, was that I think it was round about Christmas time uh, there was a dispute over the shovels at the mine the big uh, okay. B&A shovels and uh, and that resulted in uh, in a strike at Panawanica which then led to a strike at uh, at Cape Lambert of course. And then the, uh, the the dispute proper took on. And that's all we have time for this morning on Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR 855 AM. Tune in next Saturday morning at 8 AM to hear part two of the interview with Graham Haynes to look at the Robe River dispute. Yeah, and yet again, uh, Marcus Harrington uh, for Rank and File uh, introduces or reminds us of the fascinating, fascinating nature of uh, workers class, the working class struggle in Australia. He he does great reports, Marcus. Yeah, and actually from the ground. Yeah, the that's right. people, the real people in the union. Yeah, it's fantastic. We've got a few things uh, uh, to tell you about uh, various uh, rallies, various things that are happening now tomorrow. This is we're right in the middle of refugee week, aren't we? Yes. And there's a, I suppose, the climax or the grand finale will be the rally that's happening tomorrow, um, which people might have heard about, but it's 2pm in City Square it starts uh, for World Refugee Day. Yeah, that's right. So be there or be square. Uh, They've been doing a lot of events. And in fact, I think uh, there's pop-up demonstrations throughout the uh, day during... Yes, that's right. They've got a whole strategy that's going on uh, relating to this. But uh, the main rally is at 2 o'clock and it's at, where is it? It's at City Square. City Square. Okay, so, uh, yep, that's right. Corner of uh, Swanston and Collins Street. Uh, Also pop-up protests around Melbourne CBD from 1pm. You can go to Facebook for details or you can uh, talk to Marie on 0409 252 673. That's 0409 
to get more information. There's also going to be a rally, Stop the Forced Closures. Now, there's been a series of rallies uh, being called by war, warriors uh, of um, Aboriginal resistance. But uh, the next one in the series, Friday, June the 26th, 3pm, it starts and it's going to be at uh, Flinders Street Station. It's organised by Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance. It's that time again for the people of Melbourne from all colours, backgrounds and walks of life to stand up against the forced closures of Aboriginal communities. We have a right to stay on our homelands, they say. We have a right to practice our culture and we have a responsibility to stand up for our rights Our brothers and sisters impacted by racist policies, particularly in Western Australia, South Australia and the Northern Territory. So that's at uh, Flinders Street Station, June the 26th. That's next Friday at 3pm. So be there or be square yet again. There are other things that are going on. The uh, Green Left Weekly Comedy Debate is starting on uh, is going to be on Friday, July the twenty fourth at six thirty p.m. for an eight p.m. start. So obviously they must be going to feed people. Uh, Masters of Ceremonies Rod Quantock, our very own new newly honoured minted <laughs> fellow Order of Australia, yeah, yeah, with the comic talents of all of Ali MC. Kirsty Mack, Minister of Un-Australian Affairs, Moveen Smith, Evan Thompson. Uh, there's going to be a bar and meal available from 6.30pm, Sarah's right. They are going to feed you. It's at the Brunswick Town Hall corner of Sydney Road and Dawson Street, Brunswick. The tickets are $50 and it's always a great night. So that's Friday, July the 24th, 6.30pm. But before that, uh, I did it out of turn. There's actually a rally... On uh, the 18th of mm. July. Now, this is there's been a big build-up for this rally. You know about this, don't you? Yeah, it's uh, there's been a racist rally that's been called by Reclaim Australia, which seems to consist of the far right and uh, various various fascist groups that join them. And they have called rallies across the country for July 18th and 19th. And we have to make a very, very big counter-protest because Melbourne seems to set the scene. Um, it's seen as a infested by the left-wingers. That's how the right <laughs> said. <laughs> so we have to prove that uh, we're right, that they are right. Um, but there's the counter-rally is 12pm at the Parliament of Victoria and that's on July 18th. So, uh, What's this thing about 10am Flagstaff Gardens, quarter of La Trobe and King Street? I think that may have been because... The right keep changing the destination of oh, the see. rally, okay. so um, keeping we're keeping chasing them, the them around Melbourne. Mm. <laughs> That's bizarre. So, what was your time and date then? Well, the t- the latest time that I've got from the Facebook group is twelve p.m. at the Parliament of Victoria, um, and if that changes and we end up. Because it's July the 18th, so keep At posted. Collingwood Children's Farm or something, I'll tell you about it. <laughs> That's right. I can't imagine it being there. They, <laughs> all the animals would boo them. Mm. Moo them or boo them. <laughs> You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. And we're going to uh, move on uh, very shortly to uh, Kevin's roundup of uh, This Is The Week That Was. But before we do, we've got a little bit of time to tell you about 
another thing that might be happening. Let's see. What else in my... Oh, yeah. What about this? June the 27th on Saturday is the Big, Big Red Book Fair. Thousands of titles, all genres, lots of fiction, non-fiction, second-hand and recently published from 10 a.m. Uh, you can go to uh, Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Colin, uh, Carlton South. Uh, that is when it's on. It's on Saturday, June the 27th. It's at 10 p.m. If you want more information, you can either go to uh, NIBS, which is the new international bookshop, or you can phone them on 9662 3744. 9662 3744. And who doesn't like a book fair? A weak solidarity, Breggy Jim Listen, and we caught up with Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses. A question, Tiny. I will neither confirm nor deny. What? Uh, that I am Tiny. But, but you are. I may not be. I will neither confirm nor deny. I just want to confirm, whoever you are, True Blue Aussie is opposed to paying people smugglers. Certainly, we do not condone criminals. Stop the boats. Stop the boats. Then, did we pay these criminal people smugglers? I will neither confirm nor deny. Uh, by the way, why are you amassing all that heavy machinery? I'm going to build a big wall. Just a minute. Uh, Peter, make sure we've got the razor wire and check how deep it is out there. Speaking of, Pete, that giant mind, X-Train Killer X, Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer. Uh, Pete, did we pay people smugglers to people smuggle somewhere else? No, there is no truth to that false, not true, beat up, false, not true story. Uh, excuse me, my advisor wants to tell me something. Uh, Minister, uh, pss, pss, pss. Uh, as I was saying, I will neither confirm nor deny. Um, it's just hard to know, isn't it, whether we did or didn't. And, and we do have to make a concession to Tiny when he declared we would handle these matters by hook or by crook. And as people have said, we have to concede he got it half right. We also caught up with Tiny's ideological enemy, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, Little Billy Short and Ambition. A shocking hypocrisy, Bill, this paying people smugglers. This disgraceful chapter in true blue Aussie history shows just how far this government will go. This is a government that has no regard for propriety, for law, for the working people to whom I have devoted my life. Did you get that? I have devoted my life to working people. wonder why he stressed that. After all, we know the AWU has always been a model for solidarity forever. Workers of the world unite. Anyway, a bill of socialist government would never pay people smugglers. I can neither confirm nor deny. Gotta say, that response did kick the guts out of the opposition's opposition a touch. Gotta feel sorry for poor old Joe Hackey, the workers, though, our economic guru, coming under attack for stating the obvious. Of course housing is affordable if you've got a highly paid job, like, well, big economic guru, for instance, and I think he was simply encouraging people. After all, if he can become economic guru, anyone can. 
Joe did say well-paid and secure, but I left secure out in deference to Joe's job. And this mindless criticism that Joe collects expenses for living in his own house in Canberra. Rubbish. Because we all know it's his wife, the merchant banker's house, and with the rent he pays and the rent others they rent the house to, sorry about the they bit, she, she rents the house to, she can afford to supply Joe with those cigars and cognac and other modest little enjoyments with which he celebrates rates his own economic brilliance. Another great true blue Aussie tiny, tiny shepherd the wealth, former true blue Aussie business profits council Big Supremo, who presented the council's solutions to all our problems to tiny and team true blue Aussie, which became last year's oh-so-popular budget, told us we're all winches. Well, not the business profits people who know what's good for us, but they just can't believe how the riffraff just whinge, whinge, whinge. After Joe brought down my budget, which adopted my sensible suggestions that the poor should pay so we could all be better off, the poor never stopped whinging, revealing they have absolutely no idea what's good for them. Any wonder they're still poor. You never hear my friends or me whinge. He whinged. And, he added, you don't hear me whinging about unaffordable housing. All of my homes and other properties in my property portfolio have been a sensible, affordable investment. And I'm pleased to see my government, or sorry, the government, has resisted silly socialist suggestions that we scrap negative gearing and other investment incentives. As my friend the other tiny, Tiny Junior, I call him, <laughs> pointed out, that would only serve to increase rents. And I'm pleased to say I'm playing my part as a proud true blue Aussie, providing much-needed rental accommodation, even if the bloody tenants spend half their lives whinging. Whinging. Motorists were forced onto public transport Thursday when a small leak occurred from a fire hydrant near the Punt Road, Turek Road corner, forcing Vic Roads to close all roads across Victoria. It's a necessary precaution to ensure the safety of all road travellers, Vic Road spokesperson James Moore Freeways explained. In the real world, the My Word They're Smart Award to the privatised public transport system, which created traffic chaos by lowering the boom gates at level crossings because the trains weren't running. Their explanation would certainly be interesting. Tiny Junior, Big Supremo Tiny, told an interview last week during a meeting of the Mines with Sydney shock jock Alan Nose, he had attempted during the recent negotiations to reduce the target for renewable energy because we were in grave danger of having too much renewable energy, which might mean we end up exceeding our 5% target, heaven forbid, that he wanted to reduce the target to a sensible zero. Wind farms are visually awful, and he wanted to kneecap the industry. And setting a target in the first place had been a major mistake. We need beautiful, attractive coal mines producing beautiful, lifting the world out of poverty coal. Speaking of heaven forbid, uh, don't you believe the old Illa Papa, Frunga the First, is infallible, Tony? Illa Papa was saying we have a right to life and a right to death. Investment classes at Scotch College and other very expensive, especially for the public purse, elite private schools, are providing invaluable education in the art of ripping off, the art of flogging a dead horse, so to speak, as a world beater. 
wonderful that these schools are churning out the next generation of Bondies able to get away with billions of other people's money. And didn't it epitomise the egalitarianism of true society that a rabid socialist like our former great and beloved Prime Minister Nuclear Hawk himself was seen with tears glinting as he talked about his little mate Bondy, the late and unlamented Alan Stocks and Bonds, as a great businessman. Although a clarification, when the media described Nuclear Hawk's hero Bondi as arguably the biggest corporate crook in True Blue history, we have to qualify. The biggest corporate crook who got sprung. After all, the very nature of what they do every day makes them crooks, the greatest little economic order of them all. In that order's heartland, the world's most peaceful state, the bastion of liberty, freedom and democracy, spoke for all peace-loving people. Nobody should hear that kind of announcement and not be concerned about what the implications are. U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the World Secretary for World State, John Kerrying for All, couldn't believe such warmongering by evil Russia. Uh, what, John? Evil Russia has whacked all these tanks and heavy weapons on the U.S. of border, pointed smack bang at the U.S. of, in Canada and evil Cuba and on the Pacific and Atlantic coastlines? Worse, evil Russia announced it would boost its nuclear defences for no stronger reason than the U.S. Arb has whacked all these tanks and heavy weapons on Russia's border as a NATO peace initiative with peaceful intent. And the U.S. Arb has every right to protect peace wherever we see peace threatened. This saber-rattling reveals, beyond doubt, their warmongering aims when the U.S. Arb weapons and peace-loving train killers aimed at them pose no threat to anyone who loves peace. If they maintain this aggressive stance, we may have to preserve peace as we have preserved peace so very, very often. Send in the Marines! Hmm, there could be a Tom Lehrer song in there somewhere. Over in the U.S. of Hillary, half of that impoverished Clintons of Wealth family, declared she would be the great saviour of the U.S. of working people, of the impoverished. Way, way to the left of Marx, Engels, et al. While clapping and cheering Hillary, I did think, I suppose it would be silly to have a real worker represent workers like little Billy's short and ambition here in True Blue Aussie. But finally, unlike little Billy, there are evil union bosses, poor, great, caring employer, bore all unions, whose untested attacks on the evil construction union at the Get the Evil Construction Union Royal Kanga Mission have been taken for granted by the media, well, not by this media, but other media, and by the Kanga Mission and its hanging judge and Crown Prosecutor, is suing the union, and the union refused a most reasonable request to hand over documents, including the mobile phone details of several officials and the employment conditions of an organiser, arguing this would hand evidence to the other party. So, Boral Unions took the evil union to the High Court, where their honours ruled sensibly the union had to give Boral Unions a free kick, and if it didn't hand its private information to the caring employer, it would be in contempt of court. The evil construction union must have just so much respect for the law, mustn't it? 
Good morning. Oh, thank goodness that we got that right. Sorry, Kevin, and sorry to uh, Kevin's listeners. That, uh, But we made it right. We made it right. And you're back in the studio with Annie and Kim Solidarity Breakfast on this morning, 20th of June. And uh, we've got on the line... Uh, Rashan. G'day, Rashan. Hi, how are you? Good, Good thanks. Um, now, Rashan, I've um, introduced you as a criminologist um, who specialises in refugees. Is that a correct um, description? Yes. <laughs> Good. Um, I wanted to ask you, because you did your master's thesis on um, Rohingya refugees and Bangladesh's policy towards them, is that correct? Yes. I was wondering if you would be able to explain some of the background to the discrimination against Rohingyas in Burma for people. Um, sure. Uh, basically, if we look at what was going on in Burma towards the, in the 1960s, after the military coup, um, Rohingyas, they were an ethnic group and they were subjected to mass human rights violations. And uh, this went on for 20 years, but in 1982, they actually introduced a citizenship law, which essentially made the Rohingya stateless. And it curtailed all forms of rights, civil, political, economic, and social ones. And uh, it placed severe restrictions on access to education, health care, just simple things like freedom of movement to get out of a camp and go somewhere else to work. Those things were also restricted. And uh, what's shocking is the right to marry, how many children you have, these also were curtailed severely and if you had more children you actually had to hide them or you know hide your pregnancy and all kinds of ways in which they were essentially stripped of all rights and um why did they uh, pick on them in particular um i think it's a buddhist majority country and it's the minority so other minorities in particular this they had a very different culture uh, so they're muslim and it's a very different culture from uh, the majority Buddhist. Buddhist. Where did they come I from? Where did they come from that um, they should be so different? Actually, they're from there. Um, they are from while the political uh, elite of uh, and the military elite of Burma still say that they're not from here, they're from Bangladesh, they came from the other side. If you go back to the history, the way that the British drew down the borders between Bangladesh and uh, Burma, they are off that area. It's just they're a little bit different in terms of ethnicity. They're an ethnic minority group over there. But Well, that tells you yeah, how, um, how outrageous, uh, you know, uh, yeah. the notions that humans can uh, take in their heads regarding yeah. uh, the reality of things. I was wondering as well, Bangladesh has accepted Rohingya refugees in the past, um, but they've stopped. I was wondering uh, the reasons for that. Yeah, um, essentially, uh, it wasn't a very political issue. It was an issue of camaraderie. Um, you have people in trouble from a neighbouring country. Um, they came in, so they were... You can put it in three distinct ways. So in um, 1978... And 1992, Bangladesh actually allowed, when there was mass 
um, upheavals and unrest, and uh, they were fleeing persecution. Like it happens in different waves, and uh, they allowed them. But then this stopped after 1992 because Bangladesh started doing this thing in which we don't have money, we're a poor country, and uh, you know it's not a permanent solution. So we've been doing this for 20 years, and now it seems like this problem has not been solved. So we can't just keep on doing this. This was essentially what they said in the 1990s, but there was no actual policy which stopped them. They just said we won't recognize them as refugees. There was nothing which said which prevented them from entering the country. So they came in and lived illegally. So they would trickle in from the 1990s and, you know, mix with the masses and try to make a living for themselves without any form of assistance from the government or UNHCR. That's incredible. Um, How did... Bangladesh, I suppose, justify this to the population? What was the sort of ideologies that they used? During that time, it wasn't... Because after 1992, people would just come in, and it was more like people in Cox's Bazaar, the bordering area, knows that there are Rohingya refugees coming in. Not They won't term them as refugees, but Rohingya. But it wasn't really an issue. It was in 2012 that it actually became an issue when you had um, the Rakhine riots in Burma and people were fleeing Burma. Thousands and thousands were fleeing Burma and trying to come to Bangladesh. And at that point of time, it gained, um, what? how do you say, a political kind of rhetoric. And it was like, we will prevent them from coming into this country because they're criminals, because they're ruining... They will ruin our society. And essentially, um, accusations of being uh, drug traffickers, prostitutes, drug mules, all kinds of things. And it would, uh, we can't handle them. That was the excuse that they put forward. And uh, just in that frame, they also tried to bring in this whole terrorism. Um, so they were associated with uh, Islamic terrorism and uh, how they would plot. Uh, They were associated with an attack on a Buddhist temple in Bangladesh, and which in the end turned out to be completely false. So so are you saying that uh, it's uh, actually economic or political and they've used vilification in order to uh, not uh, be human about uh, these people's needs? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, they use this whole, we are a poor country, we are, uh, and because we're weak, we're expected to follow these human rights things when Australia and America, none of them do it. And uh, we're poor, we don't have the money, along with um, creating this rhetoric about criminals and terrorists to kind of um, solidify this, uh, yeah, <laughs> so so it's come to our attention, Australia's attention, because of the recent uh, uh, series of boats and people uh, on the high seas, as they like to put it in the newspapers. I realised when it came to my head and I was going to say high seas that it was, uh, you know, something like Hornblower or something, <laughs> uh, uh, the danger of these people trying to travel. They're being pushed from Bangladesh 
uh, why is it happening right now? Um, uh, sorry, could well, you know, why, why, why is it that we now have Rohingya refugees on boats trying to yes. get to? I don't know. Are they trying to get to Australia? Yeah. Um, so what I found essentially in my research is Bangladesh closed down the border this time and completely. They used the military, they used the border security forces. Anybody would be sent back to port. Boats would be pushed back halfway through or if they actually arrived at the shores, people would be put on different boats and just sent back. Um, so they weren't being able to come to Bangladesh. And what happened is they started taking ever more hazardous journeys towards Thailand because they can't. They were in fear of their lives. There were extrajudicial killings going on from law enforcement agencies. So they obviously can't stay in Burma. And when you have that fear, um, you flee. Um, we would flee if we were placed in that situation. And where would they go? They can't go to Bangladesh, which was a relatively safer route. So they started going to Malaysia and Thailand. And uh, essentially, these are boats capsizing. Uh, people died from that. People died from, uh, you have traffickers now. This whole industry got created because of this. There were no traffickers on this route, and it became a very profitable thing to do. So traffickers, um, there are reports that they held them for ransom, and uh, they would only feed them once a day, so people would die of starvation. And you have mass graves in Thailand because of this whole industry, which started (laughs) from a simple thing. It's horrific. I wanted to ask you, because I know that in your work you frame refugee refusal as a state crime, which I find really um, very interesting concept because it's been applied, I think, to Australia's policy before by academics. But would you be able to explain that term? Yeah, sure. Um, Essentially, what we find interesting um, about crime in general is that for hundreds of years, we've been dependent on our government to define what we view as a crime. So something, you know, an individual stealing something or stealing a bag, it's against the law, and the government is in charge of creating courts and the justice system and sentences and legislation, which would solve that. But when the actual state, so when the actual government and their policies are causing harm, um, they don't actually take a step back and say, hey, we're doing something criminal, unless, you know, this happens very, very rarely. So what can we do to hold their actions, um, to, to recognize that their actions are causing harm and to, to level similar of any, you know, everyday crime which they already recognize? So criminologists came up with this concept of state crime. And essentially it goes on, um, it's in the field of recognizing the harms that the state does. So while it might not be legally um, you know, unlawful, uh, it is causing harm and we need to do something to recognise it as such. Mm. So, <laughs> yes. How has what Australia does to refugees been affecting the developing countries around, uh, I suppose, the Asia region? Yeah. Um, essentially, Australia was, the, I, I would think, the first country to have this framework of refusing and 
um, not just in the sidelines, but actually coming up with coherent policies, coming up with acts and legislation and uh, preventing people to prevent um, refugees from arriving at its shores. And this is uh, the way that it has done it, the rhetoric it has used. So everything starting from the use of the word both people to economic migrants to uh, we cannot support them for Australia, for Bangladesh, it's still a 10-year plan. For Australia, it was uh, ever since the 1990s, since the Howard government, it's a 10-year plan that we cannot support them um, because financially it doesn't place such a huge burden. Academics have shown that already. And uh, I think the developing world, I- I've worked on Bangladesh, and they're taking on those uh, particular uh, discourses to prevent refugees from entering their shores. Mm. Um, I, th- I think as well, um, there's been, as you, I think you point out, there's been quite a lot of work done on refugees in developed countries um, such as Australia, but there's been relatively little written on refugees in the global south, even though most refugees, that's where they're going or where they're heading. Um, why do you think that is? Um, I think it's a new... My main understanding is in the global south, whether it was uh, Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, people fleeing to Pakistan, or whether it's in Africa, people uh, you know fleeing to different nations, their neighbouring nations, they don't prevent it. There's never been outright, we will not allow you to enter. Um, so it is something new which is happening. It started off in the global north, um, and also it mixes with um, the way America treats its uh, so-called economic migrants and the EU is preventing refugees from entering you know it's like fortress Europe now um, and I think these are slowly trickling into the developing countries but it's still new so academics have not actually looked at it but it's time that we did that we are countries are starting to refuse refugees which is really really worrisome well, that's really fascinating stuff. Uh, thanks for talking to us, Rasham. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, that was perfect for uh, Refugee Week and mm. uh, remembering that t- tomorrow there is a big rally, a World Refugee Day, and that's uh, at the City Square, corner of Swanston and Collins Street. Uh, there are also pop-up pro- protests around the CBD from 1pm. Uh, if you want uh, some details, you should go to Facebook for details. Uh, and also you can contact Marie 0409 And as I was saying to Kim that uh, the idea of uh, Fortress Europe uh, was confirmed last night by the election in Denmark where there was... Uh, um, move towards uh, uh, voting for parties that were exclusory of uh, 
um, refugees. So over 20% of the vote going to a party called the People's Party when they originally uh, were receiving about 12%. It uh, also is focused on rural parts of Denmark rather than the urban centres, which is actually usually par for the course. But it, uh, when they were talking to the people about it, you know, different uh, uh, people who had opinions about it, uh, it did. They they didn't actually mention the fact that there has almost been a twenty year propaganda campaign against refugees. I That's was, incredible. Well, it, it appears to me that that it's about twenty years now that is, we've been going on about this. Yeah, is there also an anti-Muslim? campaign? Yeah, it, yeah, it's tied to that because uh, many of their refugees are actually people of Muslim faith. Hmm. Yeah. But I guess there's this broader trend of othering and dehumanising yes. people. Yeah. Othering. <laughs> yeah, or <laughs> making right. them someone who's different from you, which is rubbish. Yeah, that's right. Uh, anything will do. Anything will do. But I do remember in the 80s uh, thinking to myself, now that the Cold War is over, in inverted commas, that um, uh, they'll need to find something else because there's always uh, this uh, white hats, black hats uh, arrangement. You've got to have your an enemy. And, have uh, you, um, hmm? in a manufacturing scientific. consent, yes. I think it was one of the um, bolsters that Noam Chomsky uh, talks about uh, was the one of the ideological frames that they use in the media is anti-communism. And I think there was a, a bit of a update to that post-Cold um, War, as you say, um, and they basically argue that you can now replace uh, the anti-communist stuff, although they do sometimes bring up the reds under the bed, um, with anti-Islam rhetoric. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, that's, um, that's this is the train of thought I had in my, just my uh, reasoning, uh, was that uh, they'd have to find a new black hat. And I remember thinking at the time that, it well, it's either going to be the Middle East or it's going to be China. And I thought, oh, in, ni- in the late 1980s, oh, they're a bit scared of China, so it will have to be the Middle East. And how right was I? But now we're moving on to China. Ha! There yes. you go. <laughs> I'm a clairvoyant. Um, and uh, the other piece of tasty news, which I couldn't remember before, was that uh, a uh, ship, an American um, uh, warship, has just uh, arrived in Brisbane with uh, 5,000 American service people on board. So obviously Australia is uh, paddling the boat as well. We're doing We're doing our bit for whatever might be going to happen in the future. Yes. I don't think I'm going to be at all famous. I don't think I could handle it. I would probably go mad, you know what I mean? I would go mad. 3CR and Music Matters Radiothon Film Fundraiser is the new documentary study of the great British soul queen, Amy Winehouse. Bring your friends along to the Kino Cinema at 45 Collins Street in the city on Thursday the 2nd of July at 6.30pm. Tickets are $20 concession and $25 wage. Buy your tickets online at 3cr.org.au or at the station, 21 Smith Street Fitzroy or phone Loretta during business hours on 9 419 8377. Amy, Thursday the 2nd of July at Kino Cinema in the city. Help 3CR and Music Matters reach our radiothon target so that we can activate activate the the airwaves. Yeah, and we're coming to the end of uh, another Solidarity Breakfast. Well, that's it. 
We're going to yeah. go, oh, who was on the show? We had Carl Fitzgerald. He came, comes from Prosper. That's a NGO that uh, focuses on economic reform via tax reform. Oh, I wish they were in Parliament. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Chaudhry Rishan Rayan, who is an academic and a um, criminologist and an expert in refugees. Yeah, and uh, we're going to go out with Amy Winehouse uh, back to black because she's just fantastic. And coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.